The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. I've just received a call from Secretary Clinton. She congratulated us, it's about us, on our victory. And I congratulated her and her Aki, what's the first thing that crossed your mind when you realized Donald Trump was going to win the presidency? I think I was just shocked, like the rest of the country and the rest of the world. I was at home uh, with my girlfriend in San Francisco, and we were just watching the returns come in. It took me a while to process it all, too, honestly. But Bobby Goodlot, who's the founder of a political startup called OpenVote, he immediately started thinking about the role the tech industry may have played. Before even the last swing states were called, before Trump gave his victory speech, Bobby was writing up a post on Facebook that would end up getting a lot of attention. So I was watching the election returns come in, and it very soon dawned on me that what was about to happen. I I think I posted it around 9 o'clock on election night. A lot of people were having realization there. Obviously, uh, the election did not go the way I had hoped. And I think a lot of us on the losing side here are kind of going through the kind of classic stages of grief. You know, maybe one of those first kind of instincts is is, uh, anger. Bobby was angry at a very specific force in the election, highly partisan news outlets. Their fuel, he said, was social media, and especially Facebook. He said, quote, Sadly, newsfeed optimizes for engagement. As we've learned in this election, bullshit is highly engaging. He said it should be a wake-up call. Bobby's post was notable because he used to work at Facebook. When he said that Facebook was what fueled some of the news sites that propelled Trump to win, he was talking about the company that he poured his heart and soul into for four years. The debate that followed on Bobby's Facebook wall, publicly viewable, featured a lot of influential people in Silicon Valley. There were a bunch of people who seemed to sympathize with his view, and there were also a couple executives at Facebook who shot back. Yeah, and and what caught my eye was this terse exchange between Bobby and Andrew Bosworth, this longtime executive at Facebook. He also helped create the newsfeed. Um, Bosworth wrote, Newsfeed isn't perfect, but it is at least or more diverse than the alternatives which dominated consumption in the late 90s and early aughts. And this exchange that unfolded was a little window into the conversation that erupted all over Silicon Valley. It's a thing that we've been all talking about in the aftermath of the election. Hi, I'm Aki Ito. And I'm Sarah Fryer. And now, after the biggest electoral upset in recent history, we're going to be doing some soul searching with the tech industry. And the question we're asking today is this. Do the tech companies that guide our news diet, so this is Facebook, Twitter, and Google, Do they need to take that responsibility a lot more seriously? Specifically, people are talking about two things. One is the fake news stories that may have helped sway people's opinions about Trump and Clinton, and how social media helps spread that misinformation to a lot of people. 
The second point has to do with the way that Facebook shows some things over others in your newsfeed and how that filtering may be blinding you from news stories from the opposite side of the political spectrum. Yeah, these are long-term problems that have just come into focus in the last couple of weeks, and <laughs> we're certainly not going to solve them today. But we're going to try to explain what's going on. And there's a lot at stake here. As we were furiously getting this episode together, even President Obama chimed in. In an age where uh, there's so much active misinformation, and it's packaged very well, and it looks the same when you see it on a Facebook page or you turn on your television, where some uh, overzealousness on the part of uh, a U.S. official is equated with constant and severe repression elsewhere. If, if everything uh, seems to be the same, and no distinctions are made, then uh, we won't know what to protect. We won't know what to fight for. So Sarah, let's set the scene here. This is the first election where the majority of people in the U.S. are getting their news from social media, with two-thirds of Facebook users saying they get their news there, according to a Pew study of U.S. adults. And these are campaigns, especially Donald Trump's, that were run primarily through social media, not just through the traditional channels of the press and television ads. And some of these stories had a clear agenda, sometimes based on just complete outright lies. And they turned out to be super popular. Yeah, BuzzFeed actually ran this analysis of election stories on Facebook a couple days ago and found that the top performing one was that the Pope endorsed Donald Trump, <laughs> which of course never happened. That got almost a million shares, reactions, and comments. And all of the top fake news stories outperformed the top stories from reputable news organizations. That's incredible. The The top fake news stories did better than the top stories from like the New York Times and traditional news outlets. That's, that's really meant that Brooke Minkowski and her staff have been working around the clock. Brooke's been at the front lines of combating these fake stories during this election cycle. She's the managing editor of the fact-checking site Snopes.com. So how have you seen the proliferation of fake news grow over the last few years, if it has grown? It, it has definitely grown. It's become sort of this beast unto itself, although I don't want to give the false impression that it did not exist before two years ago. I mean, rumors and rumor mongering and fake news has been around for a long time. Satire has been around for a long time. But I think the difference now is that it's easily monetized and people are finally catching on to the fact that you can get outrage clicks and fear clicks and make a lot of advertising money in the process. I mean, it adds up so much if you have enough websites and you have enough pages and enough aggrieved and fearful people. Here are some fake stories she's had to debunk. That a van full of illegals went from polling place to polling place to vote for Hillary. <laughs> what about this one? Chelsea Clinton's apartment has a secret hospital where Hillary got treatment after her fainting spell on 9-11. Or there's a one that says Donald Trump personally sent out a plane to help some Marines get back home after Operation Desert Storm in the 90s. 
Okay, so this is probably a good time to explain how Facebook's newsfeed actually works, how Facebook shows you some stories but not others. Well, Facebook is making sure that they are showing you content you're likely to be interested in. That's really all they care about. They're using signals based on what you like. Uh, even the articles that you read that you don't actually click like on or share, maybe you just hover on them a little longer than other posts. Facebook's algorithm notices and adjusts to your preference. That has been tweaked by fake news purveyors because they realized that you can really harness the power of fear and outrage in particular. And also, by the way, that's not limited to fear and outrage. Uh, puppies and women's boobs also make a lot of money, sometimes kittens. So there, there's all those kinds of things. And they've managed to sort of get it to an art form, you know, the keywords that make people angry and have them share stuff. So it's with this backdrop that our former Facebook product designer, Bobby Goodlot, posted what he posted on the night of the election. And in addition to attracting rebuttals from some of Facebook's executives, Bobby's post also caught the attention of an outspoken guy in Silicon Valley. At the time, he was halfway around the world. Election night, I was in Portugal with, uh, for a web summit uh, conference. Uh, with a bunch of other people from technology in San Francisco watching, you know, watching the election with... Um, were you guys in a bar? Like, what, what was the... Yeah, we were in a uh, series of bars. We kept trying to find a place to watch that the election. That was still open. That was still, <laughs> still open and, uh, you know, still had, like, had TV with audio. So it was, it was an adventure on its own. That's Justin Kahn, a partner at Y Combinator and the founder of Twitch, which has millions of people streaming video games as they play them. I saw Bobby's post, and I saw also the posts of a bunch of Facebook execs vehemently denying it, right? They were saying it's better. They, they were very much rationalizing what they'd created, right? They were saying it's better that everyone can just consume, th- you know, one of thousands of news sources. I don't agree, right? I don't agree with that. And that night, I, I think, was very eye-opening to see it. Like, we are um, creating something that we don't really know what the full consequences are, but we are basically bifurcating our, our realities into, you know, you're living in the factual reality that you want to now. I think that night was really when I started thinking about this. And the next day, Justin was at the conference that he was in Lisbon for, and he was with this other investor called Dave Mickler. He's the founder at 500 Startups, which invests and helps young startups grow. Justin hadn't slept much and tensions were high. We were all, had all been watching the election up until 5 a.m. that morning before. And Dave, we, we were on a panel together, supposed to be about ego. And Dave got up and he just started screaming about the fake news. I'm pissed right now. What is wrong with you? What is wrong with you if you're not pissed right now? Technology has a role in that we communicate, we provide communication platforms to the rest of the country. And we are allowing shit to happen, just like the cable news networks, just like talk radio. It's a propaganda medium. And if people aren't aware of the shit that they're being told, if they're being told a story of fear, if they're being told a story of other, if they're not, like, understanding that people are trying to use them to get to fucking office, then yes, assholes like Trump are going to take office. And it's our duty and our responsibility as entrepreneurs, as citizens of the fucking world, to make sure that shit does not happen. And at first I was, like, really shocked. He threw his water bottle at the audience. Uh, but then I realized, like, you know, I started talking about it with friends of mine in the days following, and we started doing some research. You can't quantify the effect it's had on votes necessarily, but 
it can't not make some difference, right? And the fact is, it's a nonpartisan issue, I think. People making decisions based on fake news is not a good idea, right? That's, I think everyone can agree that that's actually going to be bad for American society and discourse in general. Justin, Dave, and Bobby weren't the only people thinking about this. After the election, a lot of stories came out, essentially blaming Facebook for helping these fake news stories go viral. And critics claim that some of these stories may have even tipped the American electorate in favor of Donald Trump. The pressure was mounting, and conveniently, Facebook CEO Mark Zuckerberg was scheduled to appear at a conference hosted by Techonomy. I tuned in. You know, personally, I think... Uh, the the idea that uh, you know fake news on Facebook, uh, of which you know it's a it's a very small amount of of, um, of the content, uh, influenced the the election in any way. I think is a, a pretty crazy idea, right? And it's um, you know voters make decisions based on their lived experience, right? I mean they you kind of one part of this that I think is important is we really believe in, in people, right? And, and that they can, like, you don't generally go wrong when you trust that people understand what they care about and what's important to them, and, uh, and you build systems that reflect that. Okay, so the founder of Facebook is saying that Facebook didn't have an impact on the election? Right, kind of different what they tell their advertisers. <laughs> But Dave McClure, the investor who threw his water bottle at the conference in Lisbon, he said it wasn't right for Zuckerberg to deflect responsibility for this. I mean, whether or not they're a media company, they certainly have a responsibility in terms of allowing inaccurate news reports to have substantial impact. There's certainly news stories on there that are clearly fabricated that were being seen by hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people. And to suggest that that's not going to have impact on an election is just very disingenuous. For Mark to suggest that Facebook isn't influential in terms of any kind of content is preposterous. <laughs> I mean, when, when Facebook is promoting numbers in the billions of people that are using its products, and daily usage numbers that are substantial portions of the population to suggest that they do not have influence is just patently unbelievable. Later on his Facebook wall, Zuckerberg noted that 99% of stories in newsfeed aren't fake. But one former Facebook employee had some qualms with that claim. Judd Anton, who now works for Airbnb, did some quick napkin math to find that 1% of stories being fake that's actually kind of big. It could mean 12 million people see a fake news story every day. And he notes that if 1% of the articles in the New York Times, or for that matter, Bloomberg, were wrong, that would be absolutely unacceptable. And behind all of this is this. Facebook isn't a news organization, right? It doesn't write stories the way you and I do, Sarah. And Facebook doesn't want to be the arbiter of what is and isn't news, what is and isn't true on the internet. Yeah, they, they want to leave it to their users to report fake and misleading content. If they were to get too close to deciding, that could open the company up to criticism. They'd have to define the truth, and they're afraid of appearing biased. Yeah, and if you compare that to Google and Twitter... Google Sundar Pichai has come out and said fake news could be a problem. And Twitter has come out and suspended a lot of high-profile, white-power, nationalist, extremist accounts. But Facebook... 
Yeah, like earlier this year, there were some reports that their trending topics editors were biased against conservatives, and the company made a big deal of inviting conservatives to their Menlo Park headquarters for a meeting with Mark Zuckerberg himself. And then Facebook ended up firing their staff, deciding to rely on an algorithm for the trending tool. And based on what I've been hearing internally, that whole ordeal sparked a lot of debate about what Facebook's role should be in news. And after the election, that debate has intensified a lot. Okay, so that's part one of Facebook's role in the election, according to its critics. We're going to go into another criticism in a minute. But before we do that, I tweeted the other day to get our listeners' take on the role of social media in this election. And what we got was from Mustafa Naguib, who lived in Egypt during the Arab Spring protests, proving that this issue is pretty global. Hello, uh, I am Mustafa. I am an Egyptian working in tech in Berlin. We had a very similar situation in Egypt. We had our revolution as part of the Arab Spring, and then what happened is the counter-revolution started spreading fake news about key revolution figures and events. The regime in Egypt even created what we now call electronic militias, which are groups of people the regime employs to spread fake news and, and therefore trending algorithms and news feed of Facebook can pick these up and amplify them even further. We suffered from this a lot and we still suffer from it. Personally, I lost hope that anything could change. Uh, I realized that people only hear what they want to hear. I decided to leave the country more than a year ago. And earlier this year, I deleted my Facebook account because I just, I can't take it anymore. And so is the case with what's going on in the U.S. I'm literally seeing it as a flashback to what we've been having for the past five years in Egypt. Yeah, that's incredibly sobering and and really sad. Um, I think that takes us to the second criticism of Facebook. Yeah, here's Justin again. The second thing, which I think is going to be more controversial, is whether Facebook should take steps to make us see a more centrist point of view. I think we are moving towards a bifurcated society where people see different sets of facts, right? Whether it's left and right, whether you live in the cities or you live in a rural area. And the problem with that is that if we can't mutually agree upon some common ground, we don't have much of a country, right? And so I think it's very important as a society take steps to get out of our echo chambers and understand the other side, the other team. And I think Facebook has a role because it's very hard for individuals to do that. You know, it's hard to go and seek out things that don't confirm your own biases. It's hard for people on the left. It's hard for people on the right. This has become another popular observation over the last two weeks. But Mark Zuckerberg, he disagrees with this too. You know, regardless of um, what leaning you have on, on Facebook politically or what your background is, the you know, all the research would show that, you know, almost everyone has some friends who are on the other side. That means that the media diversity and diversity of information that you're getting through a social system 
like Facebook um, is going to be inherently more diverse than what you would have gotten from you know, watching one of the three news stations mm. um, and sticking with that and having that be your newspaper or your TV station um, 20 years ago. And even more. Now, the research also shows something which is a little bit less uh, inspiring. We study not only um, people's exposure in newsfeed to content from different points of view, but then what people click on and engage with. And by far the biggest filter in the system is not that the content isn't there, that you don't have friends who support the other candidate or that are of another religion, but it's that you just don't click on it and you actually tune it out when you see it. So if Facebook started feeding you centrist content, like Justin suggested, Zuckerberg thinks maybe you wouldn't click on it anyway. Yeah, <laughs> he kind of sounds like a parent trying to get his kids to eat more vegetables when, when us kids, we actually want chocolate. So should we talk about solutions? Yeah, here's, a, here's Brooke Binkowski's take. Remember, she's the editor from Snopes.com. It's important to note here that she actually doesn't think Facebook or Twitter or any of the other internet platforms were to blame for the election's outcome. She said that's kind of like, you know, maybe blaming a crazy person holding a megaphone and blaming the megaphone instead of the crazy person. But she said she has some ideas for how to make things better. So let's just say I'm a Facebook. I have tons of money. I would assemble a really good editorial team to start fact-checking. Um, I mean, it's not easy. You need resources and time. You need man hours or woman hours, I suppose. I, I would be sure to have journalists in there vetting the information and misinformation. And I would have more oversight over what they were curating as well. I mean, I appreciate the idea. And I know that computers can help and algorithms can help. And there are ways to ease it. But, like, you can't just rely on algorithms. I don't think Facebook's going to like that proposal. Well, <laughs> I mean... <laughs> Sorry, Facebook, but, uh, you know, and, I, and, and I, I say this as a defender of Facebook. If they're going to try to be in the anything other than just a social network, if they're really going to be, I mean, I know they already are, but if they're going to be more serious about becoming a news source, then they're going to have to vet and fact check and, and build a team to do so. Well, Justin's suggestion, as well as Dave's, was to come up with ways to ban or at least limit the spread of fake news sites from Facebook altogether. And Justin felt this new sense of responsibility to make sure that he himself wasn't contributing to these problems either. What will you do differently starting today? Well, my first step was I need to identify these issues and talk about them and maybe write about them. Second step, I'm not sure. I think we need to, on the job side, we need to think about how we're going to create jobs and transition people for things that are going to be like eliminated in the short to medium term. Um, I think a lot more thought needs to go into that. Uh, in terms of, I guess, the information bubble, I think we're going to have to think about what I really want to invest in or fund a company that is just giving people what they want and effectively displacing a center, you know, their access to, to more centrist information. And I think the answer today is no, whereas the answer, you know, before Election Day might have been, well, you know, I think it will grow very fast, so maybe it's worth investing in anyways. So I guess that's one actionable step. So Sarah, after a lot of this kind of commentary from Justin and, and basically everyone else, this was the topic of conversation over the last few days. 
Mark Zuckerberg came out with an update on his Facebook wall. He seems to have had a change of heart about how much he wants to reveal about his plans here. He actually goes really, um, really in depth into the number of things he's thinking about for solving the fake news problem. He does admit that they have a problem with fake news, uh-huh. um, sort of a 180 from what he said earlier. Um, the the points he he notes are the same kind of suggestions that I've been hearing in the tech community. You know. Fixing Facebook's tech so that they can better detect fake stories, using third parties like Snopes to help them, warning people on stories before they they read or share them that they may be fake. Um, And a lot of these things do have pitfalls, like, you know, he's still relying on the community to determine what is fake. And, you know, based on what the people I've talked to, people tend to mark things as fake even when they just disagree with them. Um, So there are this is not going to be an easy problem to solve still, um, but at least he's getting a little closer. Sure. One thing I love about this post, though, is he says he wants to disrupt fake news economics. And that's his his admitting that Facebook is responsible for fake news economics, um, that these these posts exist because they are rewarded by his current algorithm. That's right. These are the teenagers that BuzzFeed has reported in uh, Macedonia who are making tons and tons of money out of these fake outrage stories that go viral on Facebook. Or a couple guys in, in California that the Washington Post profiled this weekend that are just like writing as many conspiracy posts as they can for the money. Um this is really an, an area that that Facebook can make moves, and you know Zuckerberg. I want to read a little bit of what he says here. Um, he says normally we wouldn't share specifics about our work in progress, but given the importance of these issues and the amount of interest in the topic, I do want to outline some of the projects we already have underway. So these are things that will be happening. Maybe. Yeah, yeah. it sounds like these discussions were already taking place inside Facebook even before he came out with this post, but given the, the, the tenor of the conversation over the last two weeks, he had no choice but to actually come out and, and say, yes, we hear you, we are working on it. When I spoke to Bobby Goodlaw the other day, our author of the critical Facebook post, it was clear that he had softened his take. He said that after doing some soul-searching of his own, he gained a lot of sympathy for the good engineers of Facebook, to whom he owes gratitude for being able to see pictures of his baby niece on the regular. Facebook's problems, he said, are the same problems we just have in our culture at large. You can't change underlying reality here. All these systems are built on top of the kind of real, the real connections we have in the real world. Again, I, I think a lot of people are looking for fingers to point right now. And I think it's, it's, you know, the answer to a lot of this, it's more complicated than that. And that's it for this week's Decrypted. And what are your thoughts on Silicon Valley's impact on the election? You can tweet at me at AkiIto7. And I'm at Sarah Fryer. Or you can send a voice memo to our producer, Pia Gadkari, at P-G-A-D-K-A-R-I at Bloomberg.net. We might play your thoughts on a future program the way we played Mustafa's voice memo today. We're still a new program, and we'd love your help in spreading the word. Please subscribe to our show on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a rating and review. 
This episode was produced by Pia Gedkari, Magnus Henriksen, and Liz Smith. Alec McCabe is head of Bloomberg Podcasts. We'll see you next week. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.